when you think of the purpose of a church, not just Hope Covenant Church, but any church, basically it's, it's pretty simple. Uh, be people of the Great Commandment and be people of the Great Commission. The Great Commandment comes from Deuteronomy chapter 4, and it's also repeated in the New Testament when Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the great commandment. And then the great commission comes from Jesus' final words to his disciples before he goes back to heaven, where he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always to the very end of the age. And that's it. Be people of the great commandment, great commission. Love God, love others, make disciples. And that should be the purpose of every church. And I am excited for Anthony and Alicia and also for Chelsea. They're going overseas. They've been working here at Hope and they have loved God and loved others and now they get to go and make disciples of all nations. And so I know that they would especially covet your prayers as they go and, and prayers for our church as well as we continue to do ministry um, without them. But we're, I'm excited for them and as we're on this path of emotionally healthy spirituality, we want to love God, love others, and make disciples, but we want to do that well. We want to love God well, we want to love others well, we want to love ourselves well, and in doing so, hopefully we'll be able to make disciples of all nations well. And so I want to read a passage of scripture that pertains to this. It's from Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul write, writing to the church there, and he says these words. He says, as a prisoner of the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with each other in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. And then he goes on and says, It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith, and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And when, then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him, who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, 
May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. Amen. We are continuing our sermon series on emotionally healthy spirituality, and this is based on the book by Pete Scazzaro with the name of the, named the, that. And when I started this journey a long time ago, I thought it would be a lot of work up front, and then it would get easier as I went along. I thought there'd be a lot of work of introspection at the beginning, and then as we got near the end, it would be easier. But I realized something about myself, and that is, I don't like conflict. And one of the things I've learned that as we grow into becoming emotionally mature adults means we learn to deal with conflict well. And I don't like that. We're called by Jesus to love well. We're called to, by Jesus to love God well, to love others well. And part of that is learning how to deal with conflict. And when I started taking my Christian faith seriously. I started to read the Bible daily. I went to church every Sunday and every Wednesday night to youth group. I went on mission trips. I gave 10% of everything I earned to the church. I memorized scripture and I prayed regularly. But I never learned about relating to people in an emotionally mature way. No matter how much I read the Bible, that didn't just come naturally. I had to work on it. And so when I came to Christ, when I became a Christian, I worked on the intellectual side. I renewed my mind and began learning on how to pray and how to read the Bible. But what didn't change in me was the emotional component of discipleship. And I found that the way of emotionally connecting, the way I was emotionally connecting with others didn't change very much. I hadn't learned how to love well. And as we grow into emotionally healthy, as we grow into be emotionally mature Christians, we'll recognize that loving well is the essence of true spirituality. Loving well is the essence of true spirituality. And one of the greatest gifts we can give the world and our community around us is if we would be a community of emotionally healthy adults who love God well and love others well and make disciples well, the way Jesus wants us to. And so to help us understand that this morning, I want us to look at a parable that Jesus told. It's a parable that might be familiar to many of you. It is the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it's recorded for us in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, an expert in the law comes to ask Jesus a question and so this is Luke chapter 10, starting at verse 25. And if you do not have a Bible with you, we want to make sure everyone has their own Bible. And so we have Bibles in the back on one of the tables there. Um, please feel free just to go and take one of those that you will be able to have the Word of God for yourself. So Luke chapter 10, starting at verse 25, it says, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? There it is, basically, love God, love your neighbor as yourself. Did you ever think that maybe, though, you didn't have to love everyone? That's what the expert in the law goes. Love your neighbor. Maybe not everyone's my neighbor. Think of that. Maybe people in Arizona only have to love people in Arizona. Maybe you don't have to love people from other states. Wouldn't that be easy? Easier? Forget about other countries. So he goes on. Who is my neighbor? In reply to this, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he took, put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. And so there's, that's it in a nutshell. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And your neighbor is anyone who is in need. The one who shows mercy. And we will see that Jesus' response to the expert in the law at first made him uncomfortable. How do we define neighbor? And you see, for the expert in the law, maybe it was that neighbors were only people who were Jewish. And so for someone who was Jewish, all they had to do was love people who were Jewish. And they were concerned about who is your neighbor? And so Jesus tells this parable. It's a story from... He's, they're up north in Israel, but the story would be familiar. Jericho, I mean, Jerusalem down to Jericho, it's about 18 miles, and it's a story about a guy, and we don't know really anything about this person who gets mugged and left half dead, but it's a very nasty scene. And then Jesus uses two people, the priest and a Levite, and we don't really know too much about them other than they're a priest and a Levite, but when they see the person who's been beat up, they do not help. They walk by on the other side. Now, these two people would have been, are, are deeply, deeply spiritual people. They are concerned for the word of God. In fact, most priests and Levites would have memorized the first five books of the Bible, what is commonly known as the Torah. 
And so they are deeply concerned with loving God. But when they see the man, they pass by on the other side. They are not moved enough to help that person. Maybe they were concerned with ceremonial, being ceremonially pure, that they didn't stop and help. But they don't investigate the crisis, and they don't help in any way. And we don't really know exactly what's going on in their lives, and in their minds, and their thinking, but I would say they have a disconnected spirituality, where loving God and loving your neighbors have been put into two separate camps. But Jesus, when we see he never separates loving God and loving others. It's always one. We love God by loving others. And Jesus always keeps those two together. And Jesus doesn't say why they pass by, just that they did. Maybe they were too busy. And isn't busyness one of the great enemies of true spirituality? Maybe they thought, though, this person may be dead, and if the person is dead and I touch them, then I will be ceremonially unclean. Maybe that was their concern. Well, we don't know exactly, other than they pass by. But now a Samaritan comes and notices the person. And the text says, takes pity on them. And the Samaritan loves that person well. And helps that person and restores them to health. And at the end of the parable, Jesus asks the expert in the law, who was a neighbor to the one who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert answers, the one who had mercy. And of course, Jesus says, go and do likewise. And the point was here, go and show mercy. Go and show mercy. The Samaritan was a person who showed mercy. Now, one thing that we need to know here is these different characters. You have the priest and the Levite. They were Jewish. The Samaritan, though. It's very interesting that Jesus chooses the Samaritan. The Samaritan and the Jews really hated each other. The Samaritans didn't think that you needed to worship in Jerusalem. The Jews said you can only worship in Jerusalem. And so there's these bitter fights between these two groups of people. And so basically they were enemies. And whenever this parable is taught, I always think that it is being said to, or Jesus is saying this, to the expert in the law. Sort of saying you don't like Samaritans. But if you go back to chapter 9, listen to what happens in chapter 9. In verse 51, it says, At that, as, the, sorry, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And so they're up north in Israel, and they're up in Galilee, and they're going to be coming from Galilee back down to Jerusalem. The Samaritans hate people who think Jerusalem is the center of everything. And so it says this, and he sent messengers on ahead who went into the Samaritan village to get things ready for them. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading to Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? Really? 
There's their response. I think this parable is more to the disciples than it is to the expert in the law. So James and John go, Lord, do you want us to nuke them? Really, what are they saying? Let's kill them. Let's not be merciful to them. And of course, Jesus does not do that. And I think for us to understand this text, we need to realize that we are the one who is the one who has been robbed and left half dead by the side of the road. And mercy has been shown to us through Jesus Christ. Jesus shows us mercy. Our sins are forgiven, we have been healed, and we have been given new life, eternal life. And until we understand that we have been shown mercy by God, it's very hard for us to turn around and show mercy to others. And the problem is, we don't see people the way God sees people. We don't see people the way Jesus sees people. And if we did, hopefully we would live differently. And as we grow into emotionally mature adults, hopefully we will be, begin to see people the way Jesus does. Martin Buber, a Jewish theologian, described this relationship as I vow. I thou, the way we look at ourselves and the way that we look at others. And when we see them as, you see yourself as I and thou, what you're doing is seeing a person who's been created in the image of God and is valued as such by God. Rather than an I, it. Seeing people as things to use. We use people to get something for ourselves. When we use someone else and treat them that way, we are devaluing who they are as people created in the image of God. And so we need to stop using people for our own good and rather see them the way God sees them. Everyone is created in the image of God. And one of the greatest gifts that we can give our world is for us to see everyone as created in the image of God. To love God well and to love them well and so what I want us to do is consider some very practical skills that are needed for becoming emotionally mature adults. Basically, this is putting our, or applying biblical truths to daily living. And Scazzaro, in his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, talked about a scale of going from an emotional infant to an emotional child to an emotional adult, or adolescent, and then an adult. Listen to how he describes each stage. And I've had my grandchildren with me for the last three weeks. And my youngest was born on Valentine's Day. So I understand the infant stage very well. Emotional infants. They look to others to take care of them. Have great difficulty entering into the world of others. Are driven by need for instant gratification and use others as objects to meet their needs. We understand that about infants. And then you grow into the emotional children. And it says, are content and happy as long as they receive what they want. Another one is, they interpret disagreements as personal offenses. My four-year-old grandchild, whenever I would tell her no, her world would collapse. 
go on to emotional adolescence. It says, are threatened and alarmed by criticism. They keep score of what they give so they can ask for something later in return. It says, they deal with conflict poorly, often blaming, appeasing, going to a third party, pouting, or ignoring the issue entirely. Another one is, have great difficulty truly listening to another person's pain, disappointments, or needs. Then he goes on to emotional adults. He says, they are able to ask for what they need, want, or prefer clearly, directly, and honestly. Another one is, he says, can, when under stress, state their own beliefs and values without becoming adversarial. Another one he says is, respect others without having to change them. And then his final thing is, he says, have the capacity to resolve conflict maturely and negotiate solutions that consider the perspectives of other people. And how we deal with conflict reveals where we are in the scale. And the way to true peace will never come through pretending that what is wrong is right. And oftentimes in conflict, we just want to pretend and avoid it. We don't really seek true peace, we seek a false peace by not stating what is true. The easiest way to understand it, if someone says, they buy something new and they say, how does this look? Do we tell the truth or do we lie? Oh, you look great. Why would, we, why would we lie to avoid conflict? Well, we are never going to build the kingdom of God through lies. And learning to speak well and learning to listen well are things that we all need in church. Just think about this. Think about, do we speak well and do we listen well? Easy question is, how often do we interrupt each other? How often do we interrupt each other? Oftentimes someone is speaking and someone else will start speaking in the middle of their sentence as if what they have to say is more important than what the other person is saying. I, I love listening to a guy by the name of David Faraday. He works for the Golf Channel and he interviews a lot of um, people. And I remember in one interview, the person he was interviewing um, told me, he goes, just stop. Now what happens on in an interview, usually on TV, you'll have a camera in one person, a camera in the other. And what happened was, David Faraday would ask a question, and they would flip over to the camera to the person's response, and then he would go through his notebook to get to the next question. And the guy said, would you stop and listen to what I'm saying rather than working on your next question? How often do we do that? We, don't, we ask something, we don't listen to what the person is saying because we're working on what we're going to say next. And so if we wanted to get rid of our mortgage, we could just come up with an easy, an easy thing is have an interruption jar. And we put this jar in the lobby and every time you interrupt someone, you have to put a dollar in the jar. Let me tell you, the money would just pour in and we would get rid of the debt in a month. 
And all you have to do is when you, someone interrupts, you just say, IJ. IJ, interruption jar. A buck goes in. Think about that. Even today, think about that. Do we listen well to each other? Do we speak well to each other? Do you listen so well that you could repeat back to the person what they said so that they would say, yes, that's exactly what I said. That's exactly what I meant. And so we sort of need a bill of rights. And if you're following along in the notes, these are on the notes here. A bill of rights. Give Respect means that I give myself and I give others the right to space and privacy. Space and privacy. We need privacy, other people need privacy. We give others the right to be different. We give others the right to disagree. We give others the right to be heard. Not just so you listen to them, but you understand them. We give others the right to be taken seriously, to be given the benefit of the doubt. And here's a tough one. We give others the right to be told the truth. We want people to tell us the truth, we should speak the truth in love as well. We give others the right to be consulted. We give others the right to be imperfect and make mistakes. Wouldn't it be so freeing if we were allowed to make mistakes? Give others the right to courteous and honorable treatment. And then give others the right to be respected. And so we have these Bill of Rights. The other thing we need to do is stop reading each other's minds. Stop reading other people's minds. And how would you do that? Well, you would do this. Ask this question. Because we make assumptions about other people. Say, do I have permission to check out an assumption I am making? I mean, most likely no one has ever said that to you. But can you imagine if you went up to someone and said, do I have permission to check out an assumption I am making? If a person says yes, then you would say, I think you think this. And then you say, is that correct? And then let the other person answer and listen to them. And when they give you the answer, believe it. And if you don't believe it, then say, I don't believe you, and here's why. But that's the type of dialogue we have to be willing to enter into. Another thing that causes great tension is expectations. Unmet and unclear expectations are a source of great consternation in our lives and in our church. And the problem with most expectations are that they are unconscious, unrealistic, unspoken, and unagreed upon. And when I do premarital counseling, I always try and get a couple's, the, their expectations and reality as close together as possible. And the closer you can get reality and expectations together, 
it's much more easy to resolve conflict. And so here are some things we need to do with our expectations. First, they must be conscious. Conscious. Our expectations of other people have to be conscious. We have to be aware of the expectations we have on other people. How many of you are frustrated by expectations other people have on you? I mean, how many of you have problems raising your hand in church? <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't raise your hand in church if you had that. Oh, okay. So the other thing, they have to be conscious. Then the second thing is our expectations have to be realistic. I have to ask myself if my expectation regarding someone else is realistic. We would like it if people asked us if that, their expectation on us was realistic. The next one is, it needs to be spoken. I have to speak my expectations clearly, directly, and respectfully to the other person in such a way that they can repeat them back and I'd say, yes, that's exactly what I said. And not only what I said, but what I meant. Oftentimes we think if they are written down, that's enough. No, we need to speak them to each other so that they are understood. And then the last one is they have to be agreed upon. Agreed upon. In order for my expectations to be valid, the other person must be aware of them, understand them, and then agree to them. Otherwise, it's simply hope. And imagine what our church would be like if it was full of emotionally mature adults practicing emotionally healthy spirituality. We would be able to love God well. We would be able to love others well. And we would be able to love ourselves well. Be able to love yourself well. And if we were able to do that, we would be able to fulfill the great commandment and the great commission. We would be able to love God well, love others well, and make disciples of all nations well. We would be able to serve as God wants us to serve. And so let me end with the words that I began with from the Apostle Paul. Listen again to what he said in Ephesians chapter 4, where he said, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. And make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And later on he said, Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people with their deceitful schemes. Instead, speaking the truth in love. We will grow into him and become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. And from him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Amen and amen. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to know of your love and your mercy, the mercy that you have shown to each and every one of us, but also your love for this world. And so, Heavenly Father, 
We want to love you well. We want to love others well. But oftentimes it's difficult because we don't love ourselves well. And we need your help. And we want to fulfill the great command, but also the great commission. And we want to serve well and make disciples well, but we need your help. And so, Lord, help us to be the people you've called us to be, to love as you've called us to love. This is our hope and our prayer. And we pray it all in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.